Good morning to you all. If you'd like to turn to Romans 7, that's where we'll be this morning. Hope you've had a good week. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible because I feel like it describes my experience so very well. All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray and we'll jump right in. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you so much that you do tell us exactly what we need to know, what we need to believe, what we need to do in pursuing you and seeking to love others. We thank you so much for Romans 7 and um, the perspective it gives us on the Christian life uh, in the context of chapters 6 and 8. And so I pray that you'd help us to see all that you're telling us in these chapters and how they all work together and how it is meant to be a great encouragement to us in all kinds of ways as we continue to live our lives, uh, seeking to please you and yet knowing that we fail in so many ways to be all that we should be. So we just pray that you would encourage us through your word, and we thank you that you've given us your word to encourage us in the midst of the realities of life. So please be with us now as we look at your word, as we discuss it. We pray that you'd bring out for us what we need to see and be reminded of, that you deepen our faith and and shape our perspective of ourselves and of you and of what you've done for us in Christ. Please bless the Sunday school and... And please work in the hearts of our children through that ministry. We pray that you'd meet all of us today, that you'd meet the deepest needs of our heart for you, that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, that you would continue the good work you've begun in us. And we just commit this time to you and pray that you'd prepare us for our time in worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well let me um, read for us this chapter I guess before I do that, um, let me just remind you that um, in a couple weeks, on February 2nd, we're going to start a biblical counseling training course that's going to be part video and part discussion. And as I said last week, these courses are um, very helpful in a number of different ways. On the one hand, they help you think about how you can Love, love other people and help other people, but it also helps ground you in the faith as well and helps you to think about how you're fighting sin and how you're pursuing God, even as you seek to encourage others to do the same kind of thing. And so it's beneficial on a number of levels, and we're looking forward to starting that soon. But in the meantime, uh, we're looking at Romans 6, 7, and 8. Last week we talked about how Romans 6 talks about the freedom from sin's reign, that sin is not to be our master any longer because of what Christ has done for us. And this week we're going to talk about the fact that Romans 7 brings a little perspective on what Romans 6 tells us in terms of what we can expect our Christian life to be. And so we want to look at that today. And um, just to give you a bigger picture When I think about the book of Romans, I believe Paul starts out with the largely the assumption of the Old Testament and the message of the Old Testament that that God is our help and our happiness. 
And when he says grace and peace to you, to the Romans and to the other Christians, grace and peace is help and happiness in God and through God. And so he starts out with the truth that God is the, the desire of our souls. He's the one, only one who can meet our needs. And then he begins to talk about the fact that our problem is we have a worship disorder, that we look to other things besides God to be our help and our happiness, and we trust in our own righteousness. We're self-righteous. And both of those idolatries, looking to other things for what we need and what will make us happy and looking to ourselves to be good enough in the eyes of God, that idolatry needs to be dealt with. And so Paul talks about that. And he says what God has done is he's given us a Savior who will provide for us the righteousness we need and deliver us from the idolatry that rules our lives. And we find that in Jesus, an able and willing Savior for us, which is good news. We can't save ourselves, but God has provided a Savior for us. And not only that, we don't have to work. It's not a combination of trusting Christ and doing the best I can and hoping I uh, have enough good works plus Christ to be accepted by God. We are saved by faith alone, which is great news. We just look outside of ourselves, outside of our own lives, and rest in the righteousness of Christ and his death for us alone. But then in uh, chapter 6 through 8, what he tells us is that not only has Christ set us free from the penalty of sin, but he's done other things. And that once we trust in Christ, there are things that are true of us that we need to understand. And we are, live, we are to live our lives in light of what is true of us as Christians. And that's what these chapters are about. He'll go on and talk about the fact that God will keep his promises to us even in light of the history of Israel. God had a covenant relationship with Israel, had a love relationship with Israel, and yet most of Israel was not saved. And yet, and so how does that impact God's promise to us under the new covenant and his promises of love for us? And Paul argues that God will keep his promises to us in Christ. And then lastly, he talks about how we're to actually live in light of what Christ has done, who we are, and God's promises to us. And so that's just the big picture of Romans, of what he's talking about there. And we're focusing on the issue of who we are in Christ and um, our identity. Um, Let me just ask this question before I read Romans 7. Uh, How do we know who we are? How do we know what we are? Think about that. And if you'd like to comment, feel free to raise your hand. But how do we determine who or what we are. If I could add to that, how are people more and more in our own society today determining who and what they are? Karen? Well, if you're talking about society, (laughs) um, especially this whole gender scenario, um, it's what they feel. But, I mean, you can get way down to the basics, who we are and what we are. I mean, we're born into a family. You know, I'm a sister um, and a daughter and um, and then a wife and a mother and a colleague and a co-worker. Um, so just those, those are really obvious things all around us. Um, but then when you start asking the deep questions, you know, 
who am I, where am I, and why was I born? <laughs> you know, those kind of things are harder. Yes, very good. Uh, then also, uh, there's genealogies today. People want to find out their roots and where they tracked around the world and whatnot. So I guess that's an identification. That's very true. Yeah, DNA testing and those kinds of things uh, plays a big part in that. Scott? We are what God says we are, and we are who we, who God says we are. Okay. So we have a contrast going on that's very, very clear. Would you like to add to that, Dan? Go ahead. Yeah, just that um, I've thought about this quite a bit lately, just going back to our men's retreat last year when we were um, looking at things. Anyway, um, we are who God says we are, but what's interesting is that there's a lot of different things in the Bible that says things about us. Like, the Bible tells me that I'm a sinner, but is that the most essential thing about me? If you believe that, you're going to send you off in a, in a trajectory that's going to be very destructive. So there's like a hierarchy of things about who we are that's very important to understand. It's very good. Very, very true. Daniel? I think there's multiple things that make up who we are, um, besides the fact of, well, one of the things is um, we are born into who we are to an extent. Um, There's certain things that you are born into about your family and your lineage and um, many aspects that you are born into that you don't have a choice about. Um, And that's what you initially are, who you are. But then there's also your... Um, your uh, surroundings and your things that interact with you, basically. And those help shape who you are as well in terms of they affect your decisions and they affect what you might do the next time that something happens. And then usually the world sees us, or sees that people are usually one or two of those things. They're either, you're just born as this and that's all you are, or you're, you only are what you are because you're affected by the world around you. But one of the things that people forget is that the third one, which is you are also your beliefs, so the the crowning one that comes with all of them is your beliefs affect who you are as well, and it will shape what you think and do as well. Okay. Very good. So when you think about all that's been said, it's really a complex issue when we talk about who am I, what am I. Um, we don't have time this morning to try to address all of it, but let me just kind of boil it down in light of some of what's been said. In light of our society, our society is rapidly moving in the direction of I am who or whatever I say I am, as opposed to I am and I or I I am who and what God says I am. And so I make that point as we get started because that's the burden of what Paul is talking about in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that we need to live our lives not simply based on um, lesser identities or even false identities. Now, the lesser identity is in a sense, you know, where, you know, what my job is or, or whatever. Not that those are unimportant identities. It's just that, like you highlighted, there are, there are really fundamental identities that go beyond, you know, what my job is or even what my marital statuses or anything like that, as important as those are in their their place, there are more fundamental identities. And that's what Paul is talking about here, is the most fundamental identity that we need to have as Christians. And so let me read uh, chapter 7, 
and we'll talk more about this and think more about this. Um, in verse 1 he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her, <clears throat> excuse me, if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taken an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand... I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. All right, well, there's a lot in this chapter, but we're going to try and uh, touch on it as best we can in the time that we have. Um, 
when we think about the issue of sin, obviously there's a lot of talk about sin in this chapter and the relationship of sin to the law of God. And it's all in the context of who we are in Christ, our identity, because he starts out by talking about the fact that there's been a change between us and our relationship to the law of God and that we've been, just like he said in Romans 6, we've been free from the rule of sin. In Romans 7 he says, you're free from the rule of law. And then he begins this discussion of sin and sin's relationship to the law and our relationship to sin. And so that's what we want to try and talk about is, okay, what is he saying here and what are the implications for us as Christians? But before we move on, let me just um, use another one of the Bible Projects videos that talks about sin and the nature of sin because that's very much at the heart of what this chapter is about is understanding sin and how it works and how it relates to who we are in Christ. And I, so I think this is the next thing. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate, because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible, so let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hair and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. 
It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, chata is crouching at the door, it wants you, but you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. So that's a very helpful summary of different aspects of what we actually see being reflected here in Romans 7 with regard to the dynamic of sin and our own struggle with sin. Let me just remind you of the things that Paul said in Romans 6 before we get back into Romans 7. Last week, he basically argued in verse 1 and verse 15 that we should not, as Christians, continue living a life of sin or even think that committing a sin is okay in light of what Christ has done for us and in light of who we are in Christ, in light of the change that's been made in us. We should not excuse ongoing sin or even one sin in light of what is true. And he says, uh, we've been united to Christ who died to set us free from the reign of sin. That not only did he die to set us free from the penalty of sin, of hell, but to set us free from the power of sin, the reign of sin, over our everyday lives as Christians. And even as we were called to uh, God and called to trust in Christ, we were called to present our lives to him. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from doing what I want to do as a sinner to God and looking to him to be my help and my happiness and therefore submitting my life to him. 
the world is rapidly and wholeheartedly running away from God. Repentance is when I turn back to God and I honor God as God. And so Paul could argue that uh, repentant faith is a faith that presents itself to God. So it's inconsistent um, both with what Christ has done and why he did it, and it's inconsistent with the call to repentance and faith to continue living our lives uh, for sin. And then finally, he just highlights the fact at the end that why would we want to give our lives to something that only brings heartache, pain, suffering, further evil, and death when we're pursuing life? And so he's arguing in this chapter in Romans 6 that we have been free from sin. But the question is, if we are free from sin, he he makes that very clear in a number of different places in Romans 6. In verse 18, for instance, he says, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. If that's true, Paul, then why do we still sin? That's the question that I believe is being addressed in Romans 7. But if we were to try to answer that question at this point, what would we say? Why do we still sin? If we have truly been free from, freed from sin. Any thoughts on that before we get further into Romans 7? Amal? It's... Um it's the necessity of God in our lives. Uh, sin reminds us that this we don't belong to this world. We are in the wrong place. In this, like uh, every time we sin, or like there's temptation to sin and other things, like there is there is sadness connected to that one, and that sadness again leads you to see, like you know, why am I here? Why why is this? I mean, you need God to rescue you from those things and <clears throat> it's the necessity of God in our lives. I mean, uh, it reminds us that God still loves you to be pointing out that you belong to him. It's there where you can be satisfied in everything. It's not here. Okay. So there are good purposes for why sin continues in our lives even as Christians. All right? Anything else come come to mind as you think about why do we still sin, even though Paul could say there's a sense in which we don't have to. We're free from it. Charlie? Um, it's under the idea of the yes and not yet. And I'll try to articulate it. We are seen by God as in Christ. We are seen as having died with him on the cross. But we are not physically in Christ. We, when, when God looks at all of time, when he pays for all of our sins, he's paying for future money. He's paying for the totality of our life. And so there's a sense of which the law drives us. I have it up here. I can't get it down here. Do you, does that make any sense? In other words, there's... There's things to come that haven't happened yet because we are finite. We are living in a time frame. God is not in a time frame, and it's all before him, and it all has been paid for, and it has been dealt with and taken away, and we are in the new heaven. But in our finiteness, we're not yet there. And so there's a sense of which it's left as a reminder 
of him. Otherwise, I think it would be very easy for us to just forget the cross and live in our own perfection kind of thing. And Yes, it's very true that um, the full implications of all that Christ has done for us haven't been completed. So that would be one way to, to talk about it. Dan? Very much so. I realize this might be an oversimplification, but it helps me to realize that I think the key issue is that we're still carrying around, we're still living in flesh that's corrupt. God hasn't yet glorified our bodies. He's given us a perfect mind in the sense that we have the mind of Christ, and that's perfect. Um, There's nothing left to be sanctified there toward the law of sin. And it's the law of sin that reigns in our flesh. The law of God reigns in our our spirit, in our our immortal part of us. So that's where the problem is. I mean, we're still carrying around all these cancer cells, and they're predispositioned toward death, and it's always dragging us in that direction. Okay, very good. Well, let me just highlight for us what Paul says in a very simple way in this chapter. Obviously, there, there are a lot of complex things that Paul says in Romans 6, 7, and 8, but These are some of the basic things he says. He starts out by talking about the fact that um, we have been set free from the law. And he uses the illustration of a widow who has, her husband has died. And he argues that it would be wrong for a woman to um, marry another man if her husband was still living. That would be wrong. But once the... Um, woman's husband has died, she is free to marry someone else. And he uses that illustration in terms of, at one point, we were married to the law. But, and this is where the tricky part comes in, he kind of changes the the connection, the, the picture kind of changes a little bit. Instead of um, the law dying, we die. And so because we are dead through Christ and his death, then not only are we set free from sin, but we're set free from the law. And he argues that just like a, a widow is free to marry someone else, we are now free to be united to Christ and to bear fruit for God. The question is, in what sense are we free from the law? What do you think Paul means when he says in, um, like in verse 2, he's using the illustration, she says, she is released from the law. And then in verse 3, he says, she is free from the law. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Um, and so in verse 6, he says, now we have been released from the law. So he's saying, You as a Christian should see yourself as free from the law of God. Just like that widow should see herself as free to marry another because her husband has died. We have died with Christ and this is one of the fruits of that death with Christ. The question obviously is in what way, what what does he mean when he says we've died to the law? What do you think is going on there? Charlie, thank you, Jonathan. I'm going to ask it in the form of a question. 
is he saying we died to the penalty of the law? Because while we were bound to it, we were bound to the penalty of if you don't do this, this is the result. No exceptions. So is it a question of you have been freed from the penalty of the law? Because we know Jesus came to fulfill it, and we're in Jesus, and that's future. So in some sense, the law has been fulfilled, and therefore it has been removed as far as the penalties. Is that in the right direction? Okay. Yes, I think think that is. Obviously, he's going to go on to talk about the fact that um, we would not know sin apart from the law, and that the law is a good thing. And and so earlier in, in chapter 6, he says, what are we to do about sin? Sin is related to the law, because he argues that without law, sin is dead. And so the, the idea is, he's, he's saying we should be concerned about sin. And therefore, you have to be concerned about law if you're concerned about sin, because law defines sin. And so he couldn't be saying, based on Romans 6, that you're free from what defines sin. You don't have to worry about sin anymore. Because he's already said, yes, you do need to be concerned about sin. But you don't have to be concerned about sin in the sense that you're afraid that it might destroy your relationship with God or that it's going to somehow uh, triumph over what Christ has done for you. That Because he goes on, and actually uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 relates very closely to what he says in chapter 7 when he says, there, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as Charlie highlighted, there's the issue of penalty or the, or the issue of condemnation, that we are free from the condemnation of, of the law. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. Um, the interesting thing about this is um, the dynamic of what happens when we don't see it that way in terms of how we actually live our lives. And, um, and so... In the next sections, 7 through 12, let me just read that section again because I want us to talk about this a little bit in light of what we just highlighted. So he's not arguing that we're free from the law in the sense that we're free from obedience or free from you know, keeping the command not to murder people or anything like that. We're not free from um, doing what is right and those kinds of things, but we are free from the condemnation of the law and that that is meant to have a profound impact on us and is actually to free us to be more loving and to be more obedient, not less. And so he says in verse 7, what shall we say then is the law of sin? Okay, so he's asking the question. The first question he asked was, don't you know in verse 1 um, that if you, if you die or if a person dies, then everything changes with regard to their relationship to the law. Now he's asking, is the implication of what I just said that there's something bad about the law? We died to the law, that must mean it's a bad thing, right? He says, no, I'm not saying that the law is a bad thing. And so he goes on to describe something that's a very, very important thing to keep in mind as we think about our own fighting against sin. He says, may it never be, in verse 7, 
On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Think about this question. Um, What is the most bizarre murder weapon you've ever heard of? You can actually Google this. Bizarre murder weapons. An icicle? Okay. You may have heard of strange things that people have used to kill other people with. Bowling balls, sweatpants, uh, lamps. There's just all kinds of things. I mean, you can... If you really, even a dessert spoon. And if you really want to kill somebody, you can probably just use just about anything. But I, sh- I say that simply to say we would be surprised that anybody would even try to kill somebody with something like that, much less be able to kill somebody with a dessert spoon or anything like that. What is Paul saying in this um, passage here that we just read? What is he saying? is being used to kill us. The law. But what is using the law? Sin. He's personifying sin. And he says sin, uh, in verse 11, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment or the law deceived me and through it killed me. And he makes it very clear that the law and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Something you would never expect to be used to kill you. Something so good as God's law. And so you've got this picture and the word for opportunity is actually a word that means um, a place from which an attack is launched. Or... Um, a starting point of a base of operations, or it can be even seen in the sense of an instrument or a weapon. So it could be thought in terms of a weapon, or it could be thought in terms of a place from which an attack is made. So what I want you to think about is, what is the implication of that? What is the implication of the fact that a, a good thing like what God tells us is right and wrong, if that can be used to actually lead me into sin, which brings death. That's what it means by sin killed me. The wages of sin is death. Sin brings death to us, and therefore it's related to the law. What are the implications of that? That a good good law could actually be something that Sin, thinking of it in terms of personification, brings me, leads me into sin and leads me into death. This is one of those, this is one of those passages where a lot of people debate, is Paul talking about people before they come to Christ or after they come to Christ? 
And there are certain things he says that appear to be especially true for those for pe- for people before they come to Christ, and especially there are other things he says that seem to be especially true for people after they come to Christ. But there are others who would argue he's talking in such a way that that he's uh, throwing the net over both. It's not an either or. That he's talking about a dynamic between what God tells us to do or not do and sin and how that impacts our lives. Uh, What I'm getting at is uh, how often have we heard the illustration? uh, You're walking down the street and there's um, a bench and there's a sign on that bench. And it says, wet paint, do not touch. And how often have you heard people say, just that do not touch can make people have an urge to touch it. A little child, you know, hasn't even recognized something in the room. And then you say, don't you touch that. Before they even thought about it, there was no temptation to touch it. But once you say, don't touch that, now right in front of them is the reality. Wow, that's something that maybe I ought to touch because they don't want me to. Maybe they're trying to keep something good from me. And so just the drawing your attention to it, don't do that. Paul seems to be saying that the, the reality is because of our sin, whether you call it our flesh, our sin nature, or whatever you want to call it, it actually pulls us in that direction. So that's part of the answer to why do we still sin? Why do unbelievers sin? And even as believers, why do we still have that pull towards sin? One of the the interesting dynamics is um, to be told no can stir up our flesh to actually want the very thing we've been told no. And it obviously is illustrated going all the way, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God said, you can eat of any tree in this whole world that you have access to, except this one. And so what's the only one that they really wanted to to eat from? Well, at one point, it became that tree. Did they need to eat from that tree? No. It, had, it was all about believing the lie that somehow God was keeping something good from you. That's why he told you not to eat it, because God's not good. And he's keeping something good from you. And we have inherited that that perspective on life. That if God is telling me to do something or not do something, it must be because he's trying to keep me from what is really good. That's the sinful perspective. And it's only by God's grace that we come to see it differently. Well, let me um, move on because he talks about the fact that our, our real problem is not the law. It's not that, you know what, I'd be a better person if I just didn't have all these expectations on my life. If I didn't have the Ten Commandments, if I didn't have, you know, people telling me what to do, all these traffic laws or any any other kind of law. The interesting thing about the law in this chapter is that sometimes it's as broad as the law of marriage, which could be in any culture. And then sometimes it's very specific. It's talking about the law of God, thou shalt not covet. And then toward the end of the chapter, it's it's more like a principle when he says in verse 21, I find then the principle, which is actually the word for law, I find then the law that evil is present in me. 
which is kind of like a, a controlling principle or a ruling principle. And so you've got this this uh, dynamic with law, whether we're talking about God's law or just laws that man makes and the fact that it plays a role in our lives in terms of fighting sin. And yet the problem is not that we're not free from sin, because Paul says we are. The problem isn't that we have a God who has bad laws. The problem is what Paul talks about when he says indwelling sin. Um, He says in verse 21, as I just mentioned, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Um, Many of you have probably read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And um, um, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote that, was actually raised uh, in a Presbyterian context. His grandfather was a Presbyterian minister. And um, there are things in the book that seem to point toward Romans 7 in various ways. And there are, there are different people who will, will say that it's very likely, although I'm not sure if there's anything that Robert Louis Stevenson ever said that actually confirmed this, but many people would say there are just things about his upbringing and things he says in the book that seem to indicate that he probably had something of Romans 7 in mind when he wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And the story is, is about... Um, a doctor who is wrestling with the fact that he sees that he has a good side and a bad side. And he would really like to uh, separate the two so that the tension isn't as great. And so he comes up with this concoction and it results in him turning into Mr. Hyde, who is pure evil. And yet he can also revert back to uh, Dr. Jekyll, who is good and kind and and um, benevolent toward others and those kinds of things. And so there's a sense in which he can um, let his evil side do what it wants and he can have the good side and it can do what it wants and they're kind of free. But as the story plays out, what happens is he starts turning into Mr. Hyde without even taking the potion. And it's an interesting story because... um, There's a guy named Jeff Baldwin who actually teaches at the Worldview Academy that our kids have gone to for years. And he contrasts uh, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with another monster story, which is the story of uh, Frankenstein. And he says he he likes to ask young people, um, which monster are you? Are you the monster of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Or are you the, the monster uh, Frankenstein? And he says it makes all the difference in the world how you look at it because he would say how, how you see yourself is going to determine whether or not you have a Christian worldview or basically uh, uh, some other kind of religious worldview. He would say every other secular philosophy or every other religion denies the Trinity and denies that we are inherently sinful. And he argues that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde highlights the fact that we are inherently sinful and that Frankenstein actually argues that we're basically good. And so let me just uh, read what he says in, in summary about that. He says, 
These two classic monster stories provide the two possible answers to the fundamental question about man. The Jekyll and Hyde story provides the biblical answer that we are inherently sinful. A man enslaved by a sin nature cannot evade that sin by occasionally giving in to it. The more we sin, the more we become entangled in sinfulness. And he quotes Romans 6.16. Dr. Jekyll's attempts to occasionally succumb to his sin nature result in his being trapped in Mr. Hyde's body. His sin is not liberating, but captivating. Then he says about Frankenstein. The story of Frankenstein's monster provides the other possible answer. We're basically good. Forget about the old black and white movies in the original book. Mary Shelley describes a monster who begins as an innocent before being corrupted by his environment. To justify his behavior, he says things like, Am I to be thought the only criminal when all humankind sinned against me? And elsewhere, I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. He said the root cause of the monster's evil actions, it seems, lies outside the monster's innocent heart. So, those are two radically different ways of looking at people. Um, And he would argue that every other religion and every other um, human philosophy basically argues that man is basically good. And that the problem is, it's our problem is our environment. It's what other people do to us or have done to us and those kinds of things. Whereas uh, the biblical view is that the problem is in us. And that's why uh, Chesterton could say, you know, in answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? I am. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about our own issue with sin, that, that we have something in us that's inherent. and We are inherently sinful. But when it comes to the Christian, Paul is making some fine distinctions here that are very important distinctions when he says, yes, all of us are sinners, and yet when we come to Christ, there is a real change. So much so that he could say in this passage, verses 14, um, 13 through 20, he could say things like this. Um, In verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. That's not a, that's not a unbeliever talking. Unbelievers don't say, I hate my sin because it dishonors God and it hurts people and it violates all that God wants me to be as uh, his creation. Um, goes on to say even further that only is there a change in us that we really hate sin now like God hates sins at least sin at least to some degree but he says in verse 17 no longer am I the one doing it now what is Paul saying there is he saying I'm not responsible for my sin what is Paul saying when he's saying I am not the one doing it. That wasn't me. What do you think? Did you raise your hand, Dan? Okay. Karen? Another question. Um, Isn't that what people who are on the um, being tried for a crime 
and they decide that they were insane. So, you know, it wasn't them. Um, that's kind of what this sounds like. Okay. It can sound like that. It can sound like um, there are things going on that basically um, make me um, not responsible for what I, I've done, whether it's insanity or whatever. That's true. It, does, it can sound that way. Jan? And that's how I typically hear it, and this is good just to think through this this morning, but I wonder, is he saying that's not who I am because he's preaching to himself what God has said is true about him. It's not the new person that I've become in Christ. It's not who I am, but it's it's the old it's the old man, it's the old sin and it's 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 that remnant that's still there, but God says that's that's not who I am anymore and it's that fight to preach the truth to himself even though he may not feel it all the time yes i think it's very much along those lines paul is arguing that we see ourselves in a certain way he's not saying that we're not responsible for our sin daniel going along that line um something i've heard from many people is when you're um, approaching to do something especially like in a job field or something like that and you don't think you're really good at it or like for instance with writing if you want to be a writer um and you continuously write, but you're like, oh, I'm not a writer because I haven't, you know, done this or that or anything. What most uh, finished authors will tell you is that, um, that when you start doing it, if you're writing, you're a writer. Um, and you tell yourself that because basically you're telling, you're making yourself do it more. Um, and you're convincing yourself that this is what I am. Um, so it makes you do it more. And it continuously does, it continuously brings that with within you and then pours it out of you. Okay. Yes, there's no doubt that there there are ways in which we can try to um, live our lives in light of what we believe is true. The difference between that and what Paul is saying is he's arguing that um, we we are really different. I mean, somebody who's not a writer could do that same thing and still not be a writer, right? Um, but a lot of people have the potential to be good writers. They just need to overcome other hindrances. But there is the reality that somebody who's not a writer could say those same things and not uh, be any different. Do you want to comment on that, Jan? Um, because it's a good point to highlight that Paul isn't saying just kind of create your own reality. He's saying, live your life in light of the reality. Jan? Yeah, Claudia and I were just talking about that last week in light of what you taught last week. For me, <clears throat> with a sociology background, it's, it's, it's always the, how do I, where's that line between self-fulfilling prophecy, meaning this is what I'm telling myself and therefore it becomes reality, or this is what others are saying about me and it becomes reality, versus just a biblical view. And I think it's the difference between um, preaching to myself what I want to be, 
which would be the self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm, I want to be a writer. I am a writer and hoping that it comes true versus what Paul's doing. He's preaching what is true, not what I want to be true, but what is actually true according to what God says, regardless of feeling. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Very good. Well, obviously, we're running out of time here. That's, all of that is very, very good. You notice he, he says in verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, and then he qualifies that. That is in my flesh. And so what he's highlighting is he's saying when he says, I didn't do it, he doesn't mean he didn't, he in some sense, he's not saying he in some sense didn't do it. He's saying that the person he truly is in Christ did not do that. What happened was indwelling sin. And so he's he's highlighting the fact, and Dan touched on this earlier, is that there's there's still something within us as Christians, and Charlie also touched on it too, that there's the flesh. There's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. That we are not fully glorified. We're not fully free from anything within us that that balks at uh, God's commands and is even tempted to uh, do something because we're told not to do it. There, There is that which is in us that still uh, seeks to lead us into sin. And yet, God is one day going to do away with that. And the person that he's already begun to make us to be, we've already begun to be a new creation. And that new creation is being perfected, Paul would say. It's not completed yet. But the person that we will truly be one day has already begun. And one day it will be completed. But there is still within us indwelling sin, which is powerful. Very, very powerful. And so the question is, and we'll have to conclude with this question, if it's true that I'm truly free from sin and yet I find within me indwelling sin that is very, very powerful. So much so that Paul could say, I do the very thing I don't want to do. What's the answer? Because he's already said, don't live in sin and don't even be content with one sin. And yet he's acknowledged the fact that he himself does things that he doesn't want to do because of indwelling sin. So what would Paul say is the rest of the story? And that's Romans 8. And that's what we'll talk about next week. So let's pray. Father, I pray that somehow this would be encouraging for us to think in fresh and new ways or maybe even just more deeply about what you've done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ and that we are to fight sin and we are to seek to grow from a position of being new creations in Christ Uh, truly being freed from sin and yet having a battle, an ongoing war with indwelling sin. Help us to see how to be hopeful and optimistic and to think differently about ourselves and to believe differently about ourselves so that we can truly grow in all the ways that you'd have us to. Please continue to challenge us in our thinking as we uh, work through this together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Let's take a break.